0: thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's The Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of
1: liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. All right, what's cracking, my thirsty listener? So, with the sound of my is flowing into your ears like a rich and comforting glass of Oloroso sherry, you know that you're riding the earth with me here at The Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And as always, I am your host and on-air bartender, Ryan McGarrian. And if you're joining us for the very first time, this little show of mine is generally dedicated to all things liquid and delicious, uh, along with occasional forays into grub and other areas of pop culture that I think might be relevant to the lifestyle of the modern imbiber, be you right here in the city of roses, hops, and hipsters, or as you might have experienced in past past, ep- uh, past episodes, parts far, far beyond. All right, so today, the mobile studio is parked inside of one of my favorite restaurants here in the Disneyland of deliciousness that is P-Town, and that is Poyo Bravo. And I'm here because I have the sweet opportunity to ride shotgun with one of the world's legendary culinary talents, and really specifically a beloved figure here in Portland, thanks to the many outstanding restaurants he's dropped on us over the past decade. And that, of course, is my friend, Chef John Gorham. John, how the heavens are you feeling this morning, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Dude, good to have you, man, and uh, I'm just glad we found some time. I know how busy you are, and, uh, you know, today I just really want to celebrate, like, all the outstanding stuff you've done here in P-Town, specifically in the culinary space, and, uh, gosh, and your rooms are so amazing, like, it's, you know, I really feel like what you do is that full package of ESP, Environment, Service, and Product, all wrapped up together, fully aligned with what people want here in Portland, but, uh, man, we're going to get into that, but uh, I just love, I think the listener is going to really want to hear about John's background. And uh, I'd love to just like hear a little bit about where you came from and kind of how you became passionate about um, what you're doing today.
0: Yeah. You know, I was uh, I've been in Portland since uh, 01 and uh, came out in Oregon in 93. I was born and raised and I was born in D.C. and raised on the uh, southeast coast of the of the United States and uh, ended up uh, always wanted to be a chef, got into culinary school very young. And I uh, ended up doing uh, resorts. What's young for culinary school? 17. Yeah. I knew I wanted to be a sh- – I graduated. I was, I was born in November, uh, and I was one of those kids that my mom got me into school when I was four. So I was always a little younger in school. So I got out
1: and got right into culinary school and okay. finished it- up at 19. Dude, that's great. Now you're a pretty big kid, man. Were you uh, when you were four? Were you big, were you like the size of the six six year olds, or were you? <laughs> I was always the biggest kid in the class. Yes, yeah, that's a, even, even when I was youngest. Yeah, that's a good thing. So where where was uh, where was the culinary school happening for you originally?
0: I did an apprenticeship program in uh, Colonial, Colonial
1: Williamsburg at the Williamsburg Inn and in Williamsburg Lodge. Oh, Man, how is, I? I remember going to Williamsburg as a kid, man. That place is so magical. It's like ah, it's so good. So. Uh, so you go to culinary school, and uh, what happens? Um, what happens? Actually, in culinary school, did you have kind of a first epiphany of the kind of cuisine or the kind of food you wanted to cook there?
0: Not, no, not really. At that point, it was really a lifestyle. I, I, I had moved around a lot as a kid, and uh, I'd always loved food and restaurants, but I, I, but I hadn't really quite you know figured out that you know it was more. the the kitchen was a home you know i I really hadn't uh, connected to people like i did in the kitchen once i started getting into them and it took a little bit longer to really have the epiphany of like what i was going to do with my career the light bulb moments were going off i knew at that moment those restaurants that i were cooking at were places that i would never eat and i and i didn't like that i was like i wasn't it was it was you know it was a different you know economic bracket that i was in to eat in those dining rooms and uh uh, you know, at that moment, I knew that I was like, "Why am I cooking this food for people that I would never even hang out with?" And I, so, I, I it started to, to, wow. to flow that I wanted to be a chef for the people. But that that took a few more years to grow.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. And uh, so, you're in Williamsburg. What was uh, after you complete your uh, your work in uh, your your schooling in culinary uh, at the Culinary Academy? Where was your first kind of chef gig or line cook gig? Well,
0: right after that, I. I um, I I made really great connections with the chefs I was with, and there was a lot of movement in that town. And so I went and um, opened up a a golf course in Newport News, Virginia. And it was with the chef that was in charge of the culinary program. He had left to take on the food and beverage directing program there. And so it was, you know, he had known me, he knew me well, and he really put a lot of responsibility on me. So um, that was my first, I was like chef de parte. I was really just you know a slave to the to the chefs but it was definitely a great experience opening a place
1: and that's where you got to start man i mean you got to start i mean the, the kitchen in most i mean correct me if i'm wrong it's it's kind of a, a good kitchen's a little bit militaristic right
0: oh very much so especially back in those days it was a lot harsher you know re- when i finished my apprenticeship i was you know again i was 19 years old and uh one of our sous chefs this is a big you know big operation this place was doing 20 million a year in you know 1980s and i uh, yeah and um you know, our sous chef got fired, and we we were doing a, an event for the Canon, uh, uh, photocopying and camera company, and, and they had rented the entire Hampton Coliseum, and so we were cooking for twenty eight hundred people, and our sous chef got fired the week before, and so I got the, the chef, and was like, he's like, you're leading, you're leading a sous chef position. So what we had set up was, we had four different um, areas that was cooking for nine nine, basically nine hundred people, and that's why we broke it up, that we quartered out the thing. And so after it was done, I put my resume in for the sous chef position. And uh, of course, I was way too young and you know, just not, not enough life skill. But they, they had, there was, I was doing the job, so it was really hard for them to say no. So they sat me down and they said, um, you don't have enough experience in charcuterie. And that was their excuse. Wow. And so at that moment, at, at 19 years old, I was like, the only way I'm ever going to be a great chef is if I go get experience in charcuterie. So then I went out seeking you know, a master in charcuterie to teach me and what what a lot of kids don't know now you know in this industry is that you know back in those days there was no there was no iPhone there was no there was no computer that like, to get information was hard and to get the to be taught you had to find a master to teach you you couldn't just read about it and figure it out and and you know this, this the information wasn't even in libraries so this was really hard information to find and so i went seeking the 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 person who was going to teach me how to become a master in charcuterie.
1: Man, that's actually. I mean, you're making me think about psychology. It's interesting how things in life that might have been created fear or pain or anything like that's kind of forced us into the space that we actually thrive in down the road you know the fact that you didn't have that that experience in charcuterie kind of moved you to to kind of move into that space and when i think about what you do i mean you are like the master of meat in this town and you think that that was the genesis of that to some degree was that charcuterie moment for you or
0: without a doubt that was definitely a big moment for me Yeah. yeah yeah no that was always in my mind
1: Oh, that's cool. And and do you tell that story to your young chefs today at all?
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially when I'm I'm telling them, you know, like, they come to me and ask me something. I'm like, guys, you know, like, you have it at your fingertips at all times. You know, if you have a question about anything about food, beverage, anything, right? I'm like, write it on a piece of paper when you're busy and go home and look that shit up. And that's what I would do. But it was a lot harder to find that information back then. And, you know, we'd have to... You'd write it down. And you might not find it for a month, uh, uh, digging around papers and you know libraries and books. And now, like anything, can be at your fingertips in thirty seconds.
1: So I gotta ask. So uh, I'm sure uh, a few of our listeners have uh, have hit uh, Kitchen Confidential, and you know kitchens in the 70s and 80s i mean as as we read were kind of really really intense and sometimes a little bit vulgar environments uh, do you what was your experience as a young man in in these kind of high stress kitchen environments was it just was it pretty brutal back then
0: yeah you know I, I, one story i love to tell the, yes. chef, the chefs at my kitchens is, is especially when they you know when there's like a little bit of disrespect to some of the elders in the kitchen i, I when I was, I, was, I was still in my apprenticeship And our chef de cuisine for the dining room had, uh, he had messed up a demi-glace. It was, he overcooked it. It was, it was scorched and I had caught it. You know, he had cooled it hoping that it would be okay. And I caught it and I brought it out and I, I was kind of like, you know, mocked him a little bit, just really lightly too. And he just straight up punched me in the nose and I went to the ground and it was like, everyone saw it and it was like, I was in trouble, not him. It was like, you don't do that to your chef. Go, go
1: say you're sorry and get back on the line and get back cooking love it man and uh, it's kind of cool we're actually starting to see that kind of layered accountability and respect uh, in in bar cultures around the country and around the world these days we've seen this you know uh, this is the liquid lifestyle and i'm always liking to to tie things back into what we do at the bar but uh man so uh you know i want to fast forward to what's going on uh with you here in portland uh because there's so much to talk about so uh let's talk about how you ended up here in p-town man
0: well, after I, uh, I, I finished that apprenticeship and I did the uh, golf resort, well, even during my apprenticeship, I did my externship at the Greenbrier and Homestead in, um, in West Virginia and, and, and Eastern, uh, sorry, Western Virginia. And um, those, that resort, the Greenbrier, was owned by, they owned uh, the um, Grand Teton Lodge at that time.
1: So it's a slow – sounds like it's going to be a slow sojourn west a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah. So I ended up working at a ski resort right after the golf resort in the winter when that when that went down um, for the winter. I, I did uh, Snowshoe West Virginia, which was just kind of
1: a fun – John, got to jump in real quick. That's the end of the first round. Uh, you're listening to The Liquid Lifestyle. We'll be right back. back to the liquid lifestyle here on the radio northwest network where once again we're riding shotgun with john gorham chef owner of man taste uh, toro bravo tasty and all their tasty and sons mediterranean exploration company plaza del toro shalom y'all uh i know i'm a pollo bravo where we're sitting today and uh man what a cool story he has if you missed the first round you know we got to know uh got to know john a little bit better we got to hear about his beginnings over on the east coast and uh, towards the end of the first round uh you were talking about uh, getting uh moving uh slowly west and uh, i think we were i think we were in the tetons weren't we
0: yeah yeah I, i like i said i was i was at a ski resort i just did that to go skiing and you know it was it was really kind of simple bar food and then I went out to uh, the Grand Tetons and I was uh, it was my first time um, I, I did Saucier there and it was it was a big job. I mean, it was it was it was definitely a very serious like chef position where, you know, like I did, I did, you know, soup, sauces, braises, all the you know stocks, you know, for like eight restaurants. And so it was. Yeah.
1: yeah, I was, anytime I hear the word saucier, I think of apocalypse now, because there was one guy in the boat who was trained Do you, did you ever yeah, see that yeah, movie, remember that guy? 100%. It was Frederick Forrest, he was uh, the actor, I can't remember, but he was the, he was chef, yeah, yeah. he was talking about he was going to be a great saucier in New Orleans, but I digress, so, saucier, what exactly, that, like you said, it's the person who does the sauces, and what else does that?
0: So, well, you're doing the stocks, the braises, the soups, any, anything liquid is me. High precision. Yes, yes, very high precision. And uh, so after that job, I was going to go work in uh, Lanai in Hawaii, and I'd gotten hired there. And uh, I, was, I was at this point, I'm 20 years old, and I uh, I was I had three weeks. Usually, there's about a three to four week period in between these resort jobs. They're about five months each. And uh, I drove into the Saturday night of uh, Eugene Celebration, 1993. And uh, Dude, just,
1: smack, smack dab in the middle of my college years. Love it.
0: Yeah. And I, I just I had the best night of my life, you know, and I was like, I'm not leaving. So I, I stayed there for um, I was in and out of, of Eugene from 93 to 98. Uh, in the middle of that, I went and ha- opened up a resort um, nightclub um, casino and restaurant in Ghana, West Africa. As you do. Yeah. Yeah. And then I ended up in, I went down to the Bay Area to study under some of the chefs that I uh respected before I came to Portland.
1: Dude, what a vivid story! And when I listen to all the kind of varied hospitality and you know environmental experience you have, it makes sense that there is such a balance of room and service and food in your places. Because you have—I mean—you worked at a freaking nightclub in in Africa, and then you've you know been working with the great chefs in San Francisco. So, um, so that's amazing, man. So, at what point do you begin? When did, when does your Portland story start? I got here in
0: a uh, um, summer of 01, and. Uh I got here and I and again I was still I was high when I was in the Bay Area I was highly focused on the charcuterie and I came here and I was like that's what I need to make my mark in Portland and uh, I there's only one place really doing anything like that and that was Beyond Meats and Sausage at the time and they were inside City Market up there on twenty first twenty first and Johnson yeah and so I I went I went I put my resume in there and. and it got circulated around the store. And so Newman's called me, fish the fish market. And they asked me to come in and stage. And at, at, that, at that time, I, I've always been, in, you know, when I'm, I'm not working, I was like, I'll stage anywhere just to see what you're doing. And Newman's offered me a job. And I, I, I didn't want it. I was trying to be nice. And at the same time, Randall from Beyond offered me a job. And then they got in an argument of who could hire me. And, and and both were calling me, saying that the other one was mad that, that the other one had offered me the job, and so at that point I said no thank you to both of them and tried to keep the peace because I knew that these relationships would be, you know you know probably long lasting. And I took over as chef at Fratelli.
1: Oh, Risso Fratelli over there, uh, that's between 13th and 12th on Hoyt Street there in the Pearl yeah. District, which has now uh, become a Sicilian restaurant. Uh, did you? How was that experience for you? I
0: loved it. You know, I really honestly that really influenced how I design kitchens. Uh, Paul Klitzy was a, a really great guy. And Fratelli was hot at that point. We were we were really jamming and it was really great food. And it was everything was artisan, everything was in house. We were, you know, like as the chefs, we were baking our own bread, we were doing our own pastries. And you know, what, the, the reason why it influenced the way I built my kitchens is, uh, Paul is like six foot nine, he's a huge guy. And he really rethought his tables. Like he built all his tables at his height and did everything under counter, and he made his kitchens extremely comfortable to work in. You never had a backache working in Paul's kitchens, mm-hmm. and I clicked with me, and all my kitchens are built that way to the day.
1: Staff-forward design, man. I love it, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, a happy, happy staff, happy food.
1: And, uh, and it's really cool because you're starting to see that, you know, again, another segue into what we do in the liquid world is like, I find that when you build a bar around the humanity of your staff, Man, they'll actually take 25 to 50 bucks left to sh- less a shift to enjoy the experience physically in, in that. And so, have you applied that to all of your restaurants, that philosophy?
0: Oh, without a doubt, yeah. I've always said I want my kitchens to be very homey. I mean, even, and then, when I, I can ask my chefs and my bartenders the same thing, I'm like, would you, you know, like one thing my biggest peeves is like cooks who wipe things on floors. So I'm like, mm-hmm. if you were cooking at your home, would you do that? You now, I'm going to give you a kitchen that's going to be very homey and very warm don't wipe things on my floors, you know, like things like that. So it's, it gives
1: you a lot of give and take when you, when you design that way. Oh, that's so cool, man. So you're at Fratelli. I remember because I was, I was, the, I was at Oba from 2000 to 2003. So I remember that place opening up and I remember it being a really big deal. And uh, yeah, I think Paul went on to, has, doesn't he have something over in Vancouver? Yeah, he's got a, he, he, Fratelli went da- under, I don't think it went
0: under. He just went. he moved to Vancouver about 10 years ago and he just wanted to be closer to home.
1: I hear you, and I got to tell you, as someone who does concepts as well, like I'm bullish on the potential of Vancouver. What are your thoughts on Vancouver in the next ten years?
0: Oh man, I, I, I you know, I, I like the inner city. Yeah. I'll just say that. Yeah,
1: fair enough, man. Fair yeah. enough. I like
0: the river too, though. I like the. They, they do celebrate their
1: riverfront a little more than we do. They absolutely do, and uh, man, I tell you what, you live over there, no income, ta- income tax, you roll over here, no sales tax. I kind of, I'm feeling it over there, man. <laughs> I keep, I keep thinking I need to go take a little lap around. Uh, Around Vancouver, but once again, we're chatting with John Gorham, the chef proprietor of uh, Toro Bravo and and Tasty and Alder and Tasty and Sons and so many others. And uh, you know, uh, let's. Uh, what was so? It was Toro Bravo was your first ownership situation, correct?
0: No, actually, actually, I uh, in '04 uh, I ended up buying Beyond, and so I had I had gone around and I'd, I'd made this reputation for charcuterie in town, and. Uh, Mary Kay and Randall were kind of having hard times with Beyond Meats and Sausage. And I had kept my relationships close with them, like I said I was going to, you know, when I made that decision not to work for them. And one day they called me up and they said, do you want to buy Beyond from us? And uh, I did it. I bought Beyond. And then uh, a year later, I launched Simponica
1: dude oh that's right simpatico okay cool man uh it's there's layers to your story you know i i pay i like i pay attention to what all the the influencers are doing around town and i thought i had your story straight but it's been really fun to kind of hear some of these kind of layers that you have and uh we are coming to the end of our second round so uh folks stay tuned we got two more rounds with john Gorham. back in a moment Welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network. I hope you are enjoying a really relaxing Saturday afternoon here in the City of Roses. Uh, it's that time of year where it's not too cold, but you've got the leaves falling. I just don't think there's a more beautiful and captivating kind of time Sensually in this city than right now. So uh, once again, we are chatting with uh, Chef John Gorham, proprietor of uh, Tasty and Aller, Tasty and Sons, uh, Plaza Del Toro, so many others, and we've been getting to know him, and uh, we've been learning all about his journey. And uh, towards the end of the last uh, round, we were talking about kind of your foray into entrepreneurship and, and ownership, and I think we ended up on uh, you getting involved at Sympatica, which is kind of you know I, I think you mentioned uh, offline that it was really an incubator and uh, you know a powerful kind of experience in your in your journey
0: yeah you know Sympatica was a pretty amazing thing to do we used, i really started it because being behind the butcher counter i was i was dying to still cook you know i, I was i was feeling a little a little like something was missing just being back there you know butchering and sh- doing charcuterie it was even more butchery than charcuterie and that, behind that counter and so uh myself and a server from paley's brooks store started um, Sympatica with the idea of just, you know, roaming around and, and, and just playing, you know, doing, you know, kind of finding ourselves and what we wanted to do as far as, you know, a restaurant in Portland. And uh, it really took off. It went, it went really big. And um, I, I brought it to my business partners and we, we, we kind of uh, integrated it with Beyond's uh, Meats and Sausage at that time and found a spot for it. We found, you know, we ended up moving into La Luna, which was an old, you know, Portland nightclub and that really fit all of our personalities really well we were excited to kind of revitalize that building and uh, and it's still there right in that same building yeah it's still there they're still doing well with it um and, and it became an incubator of ideas i mean we we could do whatever we wanted in there and uh as i later studied spanish food it really you know it, it's really similar to what they do in san sebastian with the gastronomic societies and kind of what we did with plaza del toro later um, but basically, they're, they're food halls and, and to better the cuisine, and that's what we were doing. We were we were still young chefs, and we were doing what you know again what what we wanted to do, and we'd really study it, practice it, and present it. And that's what spun off Toro Bravo. As I started doing Spanish tapas dinners, I was really studying uh, Spanish food a lot. I had really gotten the connection of my southern roots and Spain, which are very you know basically that, especially that eastern seaboard. That cuisine is a hybrid of African and Spanish food. And so when I started making those connections and started seeing why we ate the way we ate, I started playing with those Spanish dinners. And then in 06, um, we were doing them, I was doing them about once a month. And it was our biggest sellout dinners. They were really uh, big hits. And uh, Jerry Shriver from USA Today snuck in the back door. We didn't know who he was. He ate dinner. And a few months later, uh, the paper came out and rated it the number one meal in the
1: world for 06. Number one meal in the world for 06. Dude, you have that for the rest of your life, yeah. dude. That's so freaking good. And uh, I tell you what, man, if uh, if any of you listening have Minitoro Bravo, it is an absolute must-hit on the West Coast, if not throughout the entire United States, for sure, if you're in Portland. And I've been there at least eight, nine times, and uh, we do, me and my— my compadres over at house spirits we do a lot of our dinners there we bring people into town and one of the things that i think you do so well and i've talked i talk about this offline with a lot of people when i when i think about chefs in the city and about you have this incredible ability to do comfort and approachability and extreme intelligence in the same dish and i find that very few chefs have that talent that's either just straight comfort and it's really good or it's straight geek and it's really geeky but like I can bring somebody from straight up like Banks, Oregon, or, or I can bring somebody who just got a, off a plane from London to your places and they're both going to find that. Do, do you understand how that came together? Do you agree with that or do you? Do
0: no, you? I do. I, I completely agree with that. And I, I made, you know, when I, when I, when I decided to open restaurants to become my own, my, you know, my own boss, you know, and be, you know, my mission statement. I think, I think every brand, I think a lot about branding and I think my brand, my first mission statement to my brand was, was I was going to be a chef for the people. And that meant that I was going to make food that was approachable, but I was also going to push your boundaries a little bit. So I, I can't push your boundaries so much that I push you away. So I, I'm going to stay approachable, but I will. I, and, and as I grow, and I think that the, the, the you know my guests grow with me, we are able to push those boundaries more and more. And that that means that I get to con- you know, continue my learning process
1: as well. That's so cool, man. And uh, man, when I go in there, when I think of Toro Bravo, I think of that that freaking radicchio salad man that i think is like grown into this iconic thing because i see a, i don't know if it's the same one but i see variation here at pollo bravo but uh is that something uh so that gosh if you if, if you're listening and you end up at toro bravo hit the radicchio salad love that flatbread. is there any dish over there that you feel like is just particularly uh represents who you are and how you cook and what you want people to experience
0: think the copa steak is definitely one of our uh, the copa and the radicchio both are big personalities of myself and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, but, you know, when we did the Toro Bravo cookbook, you know, I think every chef should, like, reflect on all the recipes about every five years. And I and I, and I think as you grow and you become a different chef, often you'll look at your recipes and you go, I don't think that way anymore. And then you, you grow and you, and you dough that. But the, both those dishes have never changed in my, the way I think and the way I cook.
1: That's so cool, man. So Toro has just, man, you're waiting for an hour to get into that bad boy, man. And that's, I mean, I assume that's been, it's nice to start out with, an anchor like that right to be able to build off of you know like if you have i mean for me oven and shaker has been kind of an anchor to allow me to do some things do you feel like toro has been that anchor for you to take some risks and move forward well
0: yeah well when i when i when i signed on the toro bravo lease you know underneath toro bravo what the guests don't see is there's about twice as much uh, kitchen underneath us and so that's a commissary out for everything else so there's a lot of uh, that's where we're doing a lot of exploration so we have a, we're the only um restaurant in United uh, sorry in Portland in Oregon in the state of Oregon that is able to have a curing room by the health department. Now OP's got one by the state by the feds, but we're the only state sanctioned curing rooms. There's two only two places in in Oregon that can be doing this and that's OP and us. Wow. So we know we have our own curing facilities, we have fermentation, we have dehydrators, we have a full-on butcher shop down there. And so there's there's uh there's a lot going on to that food. And I think Often with simple food like that, people don't really get how much work goes into something that might be just a bite.
1: Yeah, I know, and I have friends who, who I've watched, you know, create uh, like just you know they'll spend a year on an ingredient that they want to use on a dish, and uh, it's really cool when people like fastidiously like, you know, perfect something and then just present it to somebody, and they just think it's delicious. I think there's a humility there, and I think it's pretty exciting. So. It's Tasty & Sons that comes next, correct? Yes, yep, Tasty & Sons was next. And that's such a cool name. And I remember when I just first heard about it, I go, that's a really good name. It's whimsical. I love whimsicality. It felt strong. It's felt confident. Tell us about the, the genesis of Tasty & Sons. Well, really, it came
0: down to just rethinking breakfast. I think, um, you know, uh, you know, that time, you know, well, seven years ago in Portland, you know, breakfast was still choose your potato, choose your egg, choose your toast. And, you know, I'd been traveling a lot and, and, you know, like all over the world. And I was like, this is there's so much more to breakfast than this. And so I really wanted to create a dinner house. And this is comes into your shows specifically where I was like, we would we compete with the dinner restaurants and we would have a strong bar program. And I was like, no one, everyone was underthinking their bar programs in the daytime. And even a lot of restaurants would shut down their bar and open up for daytime and just have like a simple like small bar going on.
1: I remember that. I remember that being, well, I know it has a great bar program, but I remember that being an emphasis, even in some of the press I was reading early on, was that we we're going to have a very progressive, like, you know, breakfast, lunch-ish uh, menu. And that's gone over well, I take it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's going over really well. It's kind of funny now. You you know, like, you you see how it should change the brunch scene in Portland. I mean, you look at those menu items that we brought out that people had never even heard of, and they're
1: on almost every brunch menu in the city now. I know, it's crazy. And speaking of, like, the talent within your bars, I do want to make a segue, uh, specifically to talk a little bit about uh, what your guy Jamal has been doing for you, uh, uh, Jamal is in one of portland's great bartenders uh and he's uh kind of been anchoring uh mediterranean exploration company correct and also shalom y'all?
0: yeah yeah we uh, you know we we do um well first off i want to say jamal is just an awesome guy and just a, an extreme talented uh person and love love he's family to us now and what we've done you know with with these programs like casey who is a, our partner in MEC and shalom is at toro early on we started what we called phantom stock and so we gave people who were with us a long time and really brought a piece of our growth a piece of the pie with this uh, Phantom stock. So Jamal actually on January 1st becomes a partner in those two companies as well. So uh, you know, we're, we're really excited to,
1: to bring him on and, and see where that goes. Dude, that's so inspiring, and I just hope people that are listening that are that are restaurant owners or chefs, and so, I just I feel so strongly that giving people the opportunity to create equity in their life and security, and sharing like in the partnership, if, you know, I just think that's the, I mean, you know, have you seen that be an incredible motivator within your organization?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and it's also been a very, uh, it's 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 contributed to the growth of the company. Casey was first, and that led into MEC and all uh josh gofield was second that led into pollo bravo uh, now we have jamal uh, mindy cook our wine buyer is now at tour. so so we're 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 jumping a lot in, more into the front of the
1: house and seeing the importance of what those folks are doing for us that's great man that's the end of the third round folks we'll be right back at you for the fourth and final one <laughs> Welcome back to the fourth and final round here at the Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network, where we're chatting with Chef uh, John Gorham, who is the proprietor of so many restaurants here in P-Town, Toro Bravo, Mediterranean Exploration Company, Pollo Bravo, where we're sitting this afternoon. And, you know, let's get back on the MEC thing for this final round. You know, here's the deal, you know, I I like talking concepting and, uh, you know, there's this I think there's this belief in our industry that there are haunted spaces or spaces that just don't work. And specifically to Mediterranean Exploration Company, the two previous uh, uh, tenants, it just didn't work out for them. And then you're destroying it over there, and it's just packed, and it feels warm. It never felt warm before. I mean, how do you, wh- what do you think it was about MEC and your team that allowed you to turn that corner?
0: Well, I, th- I think design is a big deal. I mean, I think, I think you know, the way we design things is very much the way my mission statement as a chef. We try to warm things up, make it inviting, make it fun, and make it inclusive. We, we all of my restaurants, we try to make it that everybody's kind of part of the party. Um, so that's that's our style, and that, that really worked in that space. Um, and then I think, you know, I think every restaurant's got to tell a story, and everything you do in the restaurant has to have a story. And you know, MEC's got an amazing story. It, it, it you know, Ron Avni was my business partner from the beginning at Toro Bravo. He's from Israel um he's a he's a culinary man he's a, just a really great person and when we were putting a lot of the toro bravo menu items together he would you know he would come in and be like oh this reminds me of my childhood and this reminds me of what my mom made and we started really getting the connection of the sephardic uh, influences of spain and and what they did to israel and so this this conversation of mbc took place for like you know eight years before we launched it and there was you know visits to his dad's ranch in israel there was you know Casey really found a connection to it by their conversations, and so the story
1: was strong, and that's, I think that's why it's such a, straight, a great, strong concept. So, incredible environment, warm, inviting, and you've got an authentic story, and then you've got the John Gorham culinary experience. I mean, yeah, it does kind of sound like you could drop that anywhere, and it's been really cool. I'm grateful that it's in the Pearl, because, I mean, the Pearl is... Uh, I just think it's nice to have that level of kind of intelligent comfort kind of expanding in that part of the city. And What uh, did you add on
0: Jamal's story? I mean, Jamal's Jamal's dad was from Israel. You know, he was Lebanese in Israel. And actually, we we sent uh, Jamal with Ron and Casey on our last trip to Israel uh, this year, and he actually found his dad's house. They went and found the house that
1: his dad fled from uh, during the wars. Dude, that's incredible. And then this is just... I love what we do, and I love finding these. This just like it's treasured when I hear stories like this. So now when I go back and I'm crushing some chocolate-covered pistachios and chatting with Jamal, like this is going to make my experience so much richer. But we're running up against uh, the end of the episode here, and I want to make sure I hit uh, a few of the other things you're doing. Tell me about uh, Plaza del Toro.
0: Yeah, Plaza del Toro is an amazing space. So this is, uh, again, a lot like uh, nodding back to the, 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 the Simponica days. It's a space for exploration. So it's... Um, it's, it's what they call in San Sebastian a gastronomic society. So this is uh, an extreme incubator for us. We're, we're, we're completely playing with food again. We put all the kitchen equipment we ever wanted to play with. And we're really just studying and working hard. And then it's also an event space that you can
1: rent out and that we will you know, we'll cook for you. That's great. And uh, got to talk about this, man. I've been destroying that half. I, I come in here for a half burger, get my protein fix here at Pollo Bravo, like constantly. Well, I have this. What's the genesis of Pollo Bravo? Well, really,
0: I mean, uh, you know, Josh Gofield, this is uh, something that, you know, he's, he's a, you know, he was our secruterist at Toro Bravo. He helped us design the, um, the curing program, and he's just a, a master with meats. And uh, he, had, he had taken some trips to Mexico, and we had taken him to Spain. But every time we're in Spain, there's always a day where you kind of just need to get a break from the ham, need to get a break from the salt. And so we'll find the Muslim neighborhoods and there's always a rotisserie chicken joint. And so we really just kind of put our heads together for a while and, and, and you know, came up with that recipe and uh, launched this. And I, I think out of all our spaces, this one feels the most like Europe. I mean, it's, it's, it's small, it's intimate, it's fun, it's always open. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to be that neighborhood, come in, have a snack. Have a meal, take some food to go, grab a bottle of wine, kind of shop. And you've
1: got two of them. You got the one we're hanging out in today on uh, just off the corner of Twelfth uh, and Alder. You got the one in Pine Street Market, right?
0: Yeah, the Pine Street Market one's a lot of fun. That's you know that really has the again a, a feel of Europe too, and that's supposed to be you know a food hall. And I, I think. Um, every great city should have a great food hall and i, I think uh, that that food hall is really just starting to get its legs right now and it's it's going to be a uh, a centerpiece
1: for the city for a long time to come couldn't agree more uh man just a few more uh just another minute here john any anything you're eating and drinking around town that's blowing your mind you know um right now
0: you know i, I really I, it's funny i've been putting so much energy into uh into the restaurants and i really haven't been out enough I've been doing a lot of traveling uh, outside the country and going to Spain tw- you know, twice this year. And I just you know, lo- love, one of my favorite restaurants in the world is a little restaurant Elcano and Guitari outside of San Sebastian. Um, I love to see more of the seafood culture come, come to rise in Portland. And I love that Vitaly is doing
1: his headwaters thing and that's gonna probably help get a lot more of that better seafood in the city. Totally agree. Man, it's been so good chatting with you. We got to jump out. That's the end of the uh, episode, and uh, hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you again real soon.